it was a convicting story. A few years ago, we had a special speaker for our Global Impact Conference, and he was telling a story about one of the leaders in our convention going to Cuba to meet with some pastors in that country, and God was moving and is still moving in mighty ways in the nation of Cuba, and this leader from our convention, Tom Elliff, went down there and gathered these pastors together, and he talked about how impoverished they were living in just abject poverty, and he was doing ministry, teaching them and instructing them and encouraging them, and he began to talk about missions and missions going on around the world, and these Cuban pastors got so excited about what God was doing around the world that they decided to take up an offering. And these pastors who really had nothing began to pass a plate around and, and put what they had into the plate. And, and the speaker at our GIC mentioned uh, that one pastor put in the plate his watch. That's all he had. So he put in his watch as a, an offering to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now when you hear that story, it's not just a story for information. When you hear a story like that, it moves you, doesn't it? And it moves you to action. Of course, we're hearing the story and we're all thinking, you know, we have so much. And, and we don't give sacrificially like those pastors were giving in Cuba. Surely we could give more. And so we were all moved to think about our own giving in our own lives. As a matter of fact, one of the guys who was listening to our speaker that morning walked up to him and gave him his watch, probably worth a lot of money, and said, I want you to use this uh, to, to get the gospel out whatever it's worth, uh, use that. And so a story like that, a powerful story like that, it really moves us and calls us to action. And that's the case with the story that we're going to study in the book of Acts this morning. When you study the story, it's more than just learning some things. There's, there's more than just information here. It stirs your heart. And you're going to see that the story will call us to action. So look with me. In Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, verse 16, Acts chapter 16, verse 16. I'm going to read a short part of this entire passage, but we're going to work our way down through the end of the chapter this morning. We're going to start in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me. In honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 16, 16, the Bible says, As we were going to the place of prayer. Notice the word we there. This is Luke writing this narrative. And Luke is referring to the team of missionaries, Paul and Silas and Timothy. And now Luke, because he uses the pronoun we. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owner saw that Their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. Now watch this. They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans 
to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. We understand in these moments our need for you. So would you just draw near by your Spirit as your Word goes forth. Open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to see the truths of Scripture and help us to see them in a way that we will take them and apply them to our lives. Lord, I pray that as we, uh, Lord, encounter you in the Word of God, we would be transformed. We would be Lord, transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we'll thank you and praise you, Lord, for that grace. Just have your way in our midst. May Jesus be exalted. And may we be further conformed into his image. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we've been following Paul on his second missionary journey. And I've already referenced the team, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And they were headed into Asia Minor. We studied this last week. And God redirected them. He guided them over to the west, into Greece, into the district called Macedonia, into a city named Philippi. When they arrived in Philippi, they went to a river, found some women there who were praying. They were following uh, the religion of Judaism, uh, even though they had never heard of Jesus Christ. And They shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. They believed in Christ and were saved there by the riverside. And we pick up the narrative of what continues to happen in the the Greek city of Philippi. And again, as we work our way through this text, we're going to learn some things. There's some information here. But really, as we look into this text, our hearts are going to be stirred. There are some calls to action uh, for you and for me. So what I want to do is I want to give you four Four calls to action that emerge from this text. Four ways, if you will, that this text ought to apply to our lives and to our church. Here's the first call to action that comes from this story. Let's disturb our city. Let's disturb our city. Now this story is very interesting. It starts there in verse 16. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, what does that mean, that this slave girl had a spirit of divination? Well, the word divination there in the Greek language is the word pythos. It's where we get the word python from. So it could be translated, she had a a python-like spirit. Now, that gives us a lot of information because of what we know about Greek mythology. The python uh, was the symbol of the famous Delphic oracle, and it represented the mythological god, Apollo. And people in this day and time believed that Apollo could render predictions of future events through female devotees like this slave girl. So people believe she had the, uh, the spirit of Apollo, the, the Pythonus spirit, if you will, to predict future events. And she was a slave, so people would pay money 
to come to her so she could predict things about their future. And her owners were making a lot of money. As a matter of fact, look what it says there. In verse 16, it says, This slave girl had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And so this, this girl had the spirit of the python. Now, we know that, that Apollo is a mythological god. He's not a real god. He's a pagan god, a, a false god. So what's going on here? How is this girl able to discern things about people's lives and their future? Why did she have the ability, people thought, to be a fortune teller? Well, I believe that she is under the influence of a demon. It says she had a spirit of divination. And later on, we're going to see that Paul cast out the spirit of divination from her life. So she is uh, indwelt by a demon. And the demon is probably giving her information about people so she could tell them secrets about their lives and make them think that she knew the future. And she was making folks lots of money. Now just parenthetically, this is probably an entirely different sermon, but I need to just say it right here. When you get into fortune telling and divination and tarot cards and Ouija boards and horoscopes and all those other things, fortune tellers, that is all demonic. You need to to understand the Bible is very clear on that, that we're to avoid that. Uh, God is clear. We need to stay clear of those things because there are... uh, there are demonic influences involved in all of that, and you don't want to open up your life to that. And this, this girl who was telling people's fortunes had the spirit uh, of the, the python, the, the, the demonic spirit living in her. And so she's following them around, Paul and Silas, the missionary team. And look what she says in verse 17. She's crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, here's the question. Why was Paul annoyed? I mean, Notice what the girl's saying. She's following them around saying, These are servants of the Most High, and they're telling you the way of salvation. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So why would Paul be annoyed that this this slave girl's following them around saying this statement over and over again. Well, I believe there are probably two reasons. Number one is syncretism, and, and by that I mean a blending of religions. Paul did not want people to think that their, their message of Jesus Christ could coexist with the pagan religions in Greece. He didn't want them to think that you could blend those two things together and, and that was okay. So he didn't want to think because they were being followed around by this slave girl who was representing Apollo that their message was compatible with what she stood for. He, he didn't want syncretism to, to, to be the, the, uh, the perception of that culture. He wanted them to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ stands alone. It doesn't, it's not meant to be blended with any other religion or worldview because the Bible says, Jesus speaking, John fourteen six that I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way to be saved. And you can't, you can't blend other religions into that, the exclusivity of Christ. So probably here, syncretism is one of the reasons that, that Paul's greatly annoyed. He doesn't, wanna, he, he doesn't want people to think that, that she's with them, you know, this representative of Apollo. But there's probably another reason that he's annoyed, and it is distraction. She was distracting from their preaching. Because look what it says there in verse 17. She followed Paul and us crying out. Now the word translated crying out is the word krotso. And it's the Greek way of saying croak. She was falling around croaking. This 
This was not a, a pleasant sound coming from her. The, the, the Greek word uses the, the kr and the vowel and the guttural to suggest a rough or raucous sound. It was based on the croaking of ravens. It, it means, Kittle says, to croak or crowd with a law, loud and raucous voice. So she's walking around behind them, uh, not just you know pleasantly saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. She's croaking, and it was a very unpleasant sound. And she's crying out with a loud voice, influenced by the demon. And it was distracting them from what they needed to do. So Paul gets fed up, and he turns around, and he says uh, there in verse 18, I command you to the Spirit in her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. How many of you understand that Jesus is greater than the demonic realm. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Jesus triumphs over Satan and his demons. Amen? He's more powerful. And in the name of Jesus, this demon, this spirit, has to go. It has to flee. But when that happens, things change. Look what happens next in verse 19. When her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And so, because she lost her, her demonic ability to tell people secrets about their lives and make them think she was predicting the future, uh, people weren't paying money to sit down with her anymore. And, and her slave owners weren't getting the money from her, uh, from her life anymore. And they were infuriated. They were losing income. And they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace and falsely accused them. And, and look what they say in verse 20. So they brought them, I love this, to the magistrates and they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. And they were exactly right. When Jesus changes lives, things change in a city or in a community or in a context. Or let me say it like this. When the slave girl was delivered from demon possession, it affected an ungodly business. All of a sudden, these slave owners aren't making any money anymore because this young girl had been delivered from demonic possession by the power of Jesus Christ. And this ungodly business, these ungodly practices were affected and folks got mad and it disturbed the city. Now I was reading that and I thought, you know what? I want our church to disturb our city. That as we go forth with the good news of Jesus Christ and we share Jesus and people get saved and their lives are transformed, ungodly businesses are affected. And and ungodly practices are affected. And the dynamics of, of the community change because so many people are getting saved and their lives are being transformed. Don't you want to disturb the city like that? Wouldn't you like to turn Hernando and Mississippi and our nation upside down because so many folks' lives are being changed? Wouldn't that be awesome? And so as I read this text, I think, let's be like that. Let's disturb our city. When people are saved, listen, they are transformed, and that can change the dynamic of an entire community. People that used to do ungodly things stop doing ungodly things. And ungodly businesses that were capitalizing on people doing ungodly things began to lose money because people aren't doing ungodly things anymore. See how that works? Wouldn't it be awesome if some ungodly businesses began to close their doors because they weren't getting any more business? Wouldn't that be awesome? And so I see this text and I think, boy, let's disturb our city. I want to see people transformed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the entire dynamic of our community be 
affected. Last night, I watched a movie with my family. I've been meaning to watch for a while, and we just never have gotten around to it. And I, someone reminded me of it this weekend, so we watched it last night. The movie's called Woodlawn. And it's an interesting movie. It, it, it revolves around um, a football player and a football team in a high school in Birmingham, Alabama in the 70s. And the backdrop of this movie is, is just really fascinating. There are two, two major things happening that serve as the, the context for the story. The first thing is... Uh, Birmingham was right in the middle of the desegregation of schools. And so there was a lot of, a lot of conflict and strife um, uh, as these schools were being desegregated. A lot of unrest uh, going on in Birmingham and other communities. And, and you saw that pictured in this movie as, as the Woodlawn High School was being desegregated. And you saw uh, white guys and African-American guys playing on the same football team together. And there was strife and tension in all of that. And that was the, the backdrop of this movie. There was another fascinating thing happening that served as the backdrop for this movie. That's called the Jesus Movement. Uh, in, the, in the early 70s, there was a great revival that swept our nation. And many young people uh, became followers of Jesus Christ. And that revival spread uh, really all over our uh, nation. And this revival uh, spread into Birmingham, Alabama. And it's really interesting to see how the story uh, unfolds. I want you to watch that movie. We, we might even show it here one, uh, one day. We might make some popcorn and take a Friday night and watch it here. Because it's, it's just a really powerful movie. But what happens is, Jesus gets in the middle of all the strife. And folks get saved. And instead of hate and division, folks begin to love each other. And they're unified and the entire dynamic of the school changes because of Jesus. And the dynamic of, of Birmingham, Alabama begins to change because of the unity that Jesus Christ brings. You know what happened? Jesus changed some folks' lives and they began to disturb Birmingham in a good way. And, and that's what I want to see happen through our church through our lives, through our families, that as we preach the gospel and folks' lives are transformed, things begin to change and we disturb our city. So number one, let's disturb our city. Here's another call to action we see from this text. Let's learn to praise God in all things. Let's learn to praise God in all things. This is uh, fascinating. Look what it says in verse 22. They're brought into the marketplace, falsely accused of disturbing the city in, the, in a way they thought was uh, wrong, but it was actually a good thing that was happening. But in verse 21, it says, They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. This was a, a false accusation. The crowd joined in attacking them, Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. You may be here this morning and say, It's hard to be a Christian. Well, when's the last time you've been beaten with rods? They're beaten with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, the deep, dark prison where the hardened criminals were. Put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Wait, what? Are you following the story here? Beaten, falsely accused, thrown into prison, feet in stocks, and yet 
They're singing hymns. What am I missing here? At midnight, in the middle of a prison, they are rejoicing in their God. How in the world does that happen? How do they rejoice God when their life is, is, is so very difficult? And guess what? Not only were they singing, they were singing loud. Do you notice what it said in verse 25? It says there in that verse, they were singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. So they weren't just kind of humming or singing softly to themselves. They were singing loud enough that the other prisoners heard them sing. So here we have Paul and Silas. Their backs are bloodied and bruised. Their feet are hurting attached to these these wooden stocks. They're in the deepest, darkest, dankest part of the, the dungeon in the prison. And yet they are singing hymns. What is the deal? Well, here's the deal. They had the joy of Jesus that circumstances could not take away. Like how John Stott says it. It is wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas at about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder, I like this, no wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. I mean, surely the other prisoners were thinking, what's wrong with those guys? I don't feel like singing. But they are singing hymns to their God. And it says here, they were listening to to them. Now here's the principle that emerges from this text. And this is powerful. If you will learn to rejoice in hope, when surrounded by hopelessness, people will take notice. I'm saying again, if you will rejoice in hope, when surrounded by hopelessness, people will take notice. Our joy and our peace and our hope can be a powerful testimony to the greatness of God and the reality of His presence in our lives. The other prisoners sit up and take notice. Why are these guys singing? And if you learn to exhibit real hope, real joy, real peace, even when life is not going your way, people will wonder what's going on with you. I bet we have folks in this room that follow Jesus in their workplace. Everybody knows you're a Christian. Maybe you have your Bible on your desk and they see you pray before your meals. They know you go to a local church. They know that you're a follower of Christ. And, and maybe, perhaps, folks in your workplace have ridiculed you or looked down upon you because you're a follower of Christ. Or they kind of keep their distance and think you're a weirdo. And, and you know, they, they just, you know, not really uh, into what you're into. And, and they kind of, you know, kind of have disdain for you because you're a public follower of Christ. Well, guess what? Those folks that look down upon you, this is true in school as well. When their life falls apart, guess who they're going to want to come talk to? They're going to want to talk to the person who's exhibited joy and peace even when they were going through difficult times. They're going to wonder, how in the world do you maintain Joy and peace and hope even when you're going through difficulty. And whatever it is, I want some of that. You see, when people see the difference Jesus makes in your life, perhaps they will begin to want what you have, which is real abiding peace that is not contingent upon circumstances. If you rejoice in hope, when surrounded by hopelessness, people will take notice. And guess what? 
Our society is hopeless right now. It's hopeless. People are scared to death by all that's happening. The, 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 our society is falling apart and people are hopeless. And what they need to see is they need to see folks that have real hope in Jesus. No matter the circumstances. So listen to me. How do you respond when life doesn't go your way? When you're at school or in your workplace and things go wrong, do you fly off the handle or do you show people the joy of Jesus? When, when your kid slides in a home plate and there's a cloud of dust and the umpire calls them out, how do you respond? They just called your kid out. Do you fly off the handle? Or do you exhibit, hey, the peace and the joy and the hope of Jesus, no matter the circumstances? When something serious touches your life, sickness... Death of a loved one, financial struggles, whatever it may be, can people look at you and see that you are content in your relationship with Christ? And even though things are tough, you have hope in Christ. Paul and Silas were singing hymns at midnight. The other prisoners were listening in. And so... We need to learn to, to live out hope before a watching world. I'll never forget my Sunday school teacher growing up. Her name was Miss Pitts. And uh, Miss Pitts was a, a widow the entire time that I knew her growing up in my home church. And, and she taught me, you know, she would move up with the class. We didn't have many kids in our church. And she, she'd teach me in third grade and then teach me in fourth grade and teach me in fifth grade. And te- you know, she just moved up with me. And I, I never forget Miss Pitts teaching us to... To put on the full armor of God, she, she would teach us every morning. She'd get up and pray Ephesians 6 and put on the armor of God. And she's such a godly lady. I, I don't remember many people around my church except for her and one other lady ever talking about missions. The only time I heard about missions and reaching out with the gospel to the, the nations was through Miss Pitts and this other lady in my church. About once a quarter, they'd get up in the, uh, on the platform, they'd read a, a story about a missionary. And that's really all I remember hearing about missions growing up in my church. She was just a godly lady. A godly lady. When I was a teenager, later in my teenage years, uh, Miss Pitts was diagnosed with a uh, degenerative uh, lung disease, and she really, she really suffered. She really did. It was it was hard to watch her um, her demise, and she was really struggling. And I remember going to see her uh, with my pastor one day, and we went in to go visit her. She was in her home. She had a a bed set up there. She was on hospice. She didn't have long left, and we walked in to visit Miss Pitts and encourage Miss Pitts, right? We're going to encourage her. And we walked in, and you know what I saw in that bed on that day? Pure peace. Pure joy. Overflowing hope. She knew exactly where she was going to go when she died. And she was at peace. And she encouraged us. And I left that room changed because I saw real hope in the midst of really difficult circumstances. And when people see that, they'll sit up and take notice. What do you have that allows you to have that perspective when your life is falling apart and you can say, I have Jesus! So let's 
Let's learn to live in hope even when life is difficult. Let me give you a third thing here very quickly. Let's prioritize impacting lostness over self-concern. Let's prioritize impacting lostness over self-concern. Look what it says in verse 26. Suddenly, they're singing hymns at midnight. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You say, boy, that's a miracle, right? Earthquake, the, the, the ground shakes, the, the stocks fall off, the door opens up. This is a miracle. But I would submit to you that what's more remarkable is what happens next. Look what happens next. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because in those days, if you were in charge of the prison and folks escaped, they were going to kill you, so he's going to just get to it first. He had supposed it says that the prisoners had escaped. But look in verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice. I love this. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, would any of us have blamed Paul and Silas for running for their lives? I mean, the stocks fell off, the doors were open, right? I mean, they could have fled to safety and no one would have, would have blamed them. Matter of fact, other Christians would have said, God gave you deliverance from prison. He set you free. None of us would have blamed them for running for their lives. But isn't it interesting that Paul and Silas cared more about this jailer's spiritual condition than they did their own freedom? That's what's amazing in this text. And it gets even more amazing. Look what happens down in verse 34. It says he brought them up into his house. So the jailer takes him to his home and, and, and he, he sets food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. So Paul and Silas leave the jail, go with the jailer to the jailer's home in the comfort of a home. But look what happens in verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported those, these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go, therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. Now watch this. And they took them out. Out of where? The jail. And asked him to leave the city. So they went out, watch this, of the prison and visited Lydia. When they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So here's the deal. The stocks fall off, the doors open, Paul and Silas don't run for their lives. They stay there to minister to this Philippian jailer. Then they go to the jailer's home. They're eating, their their wounds are being bandaged up. At some point during the middle of the night, Paul and Silas say, hey, time to go back to jail. Right? We don't want you to get in trouble. So at some point, they go walking back to their jail cell. When the magistrates find them, they're in jail. They cared more about the Philippian jailer, listen to me, and his household and the other prisoners than they did their own personal comfort. That's amazing. That's powerful. When When I read that. So listen to me. 
When we learn to lay down our lives for others, to lay down our comfort and our, and our, uh, our desires for others to, to impact their lostness, we will see great impact. So here's the question. Do you want to impact lostness with the gospel? And if so, are you willing to lay down your preferences, lay down your desires, lay down your comfort to really impact that lostness? If this were you, if this were me, would we flee for our lives or would we hang around to talk to the jailer? It's very easy for churches and for Christians to get caught up in their own personal comfort and their own personal preferences and forget the reason that they exist. People all around us lost and dying, separated from God in their sins, headed for an eternity in hell. And we know that God loves the world so much that He sent His only Son and Jesus came to this earth took on human flesh, went to the cross, and on the cross he died for our sins. He took our punishment for us on the cross. And when he died on the, sins, uh, on the cross for our sins, he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave. He's alive today, and he saves any sinner that will turn to him in repentance and faith. That's good news, right? But sadly, many are not hearing that good news from the church because we're so caught up in ourselves. You have churches that fuss and fight over chairs or pews or the publication date of, of songs. Someone might say, wait a minute, wait. You, you just told me that, that, uh, that Paul and Silas sang hymns in jail. They were singing Amazing Grace. You know the good news or the bad news? Amazing Grace is a great song. That's the good news. bad news, it wasn't written then. Think about it like this. Did you know there was a point in time when Amazing Grace was a new song? And undoubtedly there were people saying, I don't like this new music. Right? But we fuss and fight over the dates that songs were written. Think about that. And people are dying and going to hell. Listen to me. There have been churches that have split over education space. Go something like this. You have a, a class of folks, and there's about 10 of them in there, and the class will seat about 20. And down the hall, there's another class that's running about 20, and they're busting the scenes because the classroom only seats 15. And so some well-meaning staff member comes walking along and says, Listen, we've been looking at our resources. We want to maximize them for the glory of God. We want to be good stewards of what God has given us. And so we think that, hey, there's plenty of room for you down the hall at this room, and we can move them down here, and they have room to grow, and you have room to grow, and it should be a better fit for everyone concerned. And people say, I'm not leaving my room. And churches have split over that kind of stuff. They were going to move us down the hallway to another air-conditioned room with lights. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that. Think about how self-centered that is. When we know there are two billion people in our world that have never even heard the name of Jesus and heard the gospel in a way that they can understand. Think about that. So I think Paul and Silas are a wonderful example of laying down their own comfort, their own preservation, so that others could hear the gospel. 
So let us prioritize impacting lostness over self-concern, which leads me to a fourth thing. Some of you are thinking, oh, they're going to ask us to leave our rooms, aren't they? Listen, Frank's not even here this week, okay? All right, so maybe next week. All right. Number four, let's go after households. Let's go after households. This is fascinating. Look what it says back in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. The jailer brings Paul and Silas out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you and you will be saved, you and your household. And this does not mean that the Philippian jailer could believe by proxy for his household. It just means that if his household believed in Jesus, like he was going to believe in Jesus, they could be saved too. Jesus was for him and for his household. All needed to believe in Jesus to be saved. So look what happens next. They said... Believe the Lord Jesus, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So he couldn't believe on their behalf. They had to hear the word too and respond to Jesus. So they speak the word to those in his house. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So this man's life is changed and his home is changed. It's fascinating. So, listen, as a church, as we think about reaching people, let's, just, let's don't just go after individuals, let's go after households. Because here's the deal. When people are saved, they have incredible potential to reach their sphere of influence with the gospel. Missiologists call this their oikos, which is the Greek word for household. Everyone that becomes a believer in Christ has an oikos, family and friends. And when a person becomes a believer in Christ, they have great potential to go to their household and share what Jesus has done for them. And so our job is when we reach someone with the gospel, our job is to then help them take the gospel to their family and friends. Encourage them, equip them, pray for them, cheer them on. But we need to help people reach out beyond their own individual life to their sphere of influence, their oikos, their household. We see it all through the Bible. We saw it in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius and his household, his family and friends. Lydia and her household earlier in chapter 16. So we see God impacting one person and then through them impacting others. And that's the goal, right? That we have a movement of the gospel that spreads through relationships that reaches the ends of the earth. And so here's the application for us in this room. A well-rounded church will seek to impact entire families with the gospel. That's why we're concerned with marriages. And that's why we're concerned with parenting and the path and and the different ministries we offer to to entire families. That's why we have senior adult ministry. That's why we want to love people from the oldest to the youngest and share Christ with them because we believe that God wants to impact not just one person. He wants to impact households with the gospel. And so... Let's go after households, reach people, and then encourage them to reach out to those in their sphere of influence. I don't know why I've never thought of this before, but it it, it stuck out at me this week. I am the product of a household salvation. My mom and dad were married, unchurched. I've I've shared the story with you before, unchurched, far from God. One day, Baptist preacher in the front yard of my dad's house led him to Jesus. I wasn't even born yet. Dad got saved, was baptized. Mom got saved, was baptized. I was born shortly thereafter into a Christian family. 
And they took me to church. I heard the gospel when I was nine. I prayed to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. I trusted in Him alone as my Savior. I'm the product of a household salvation. I think, man, that's awesome. I'm glad that the work of God didn't just stop with my dad. I'm glad it continued on to my mom and to his kids and now to our kids. And Let's go after households. Let's reach people and then teach them how to reach out themselves with the gospels. Here's the, here's the, the summary of this entire sermon. This passage is, is one of my favorite passages in, the, in Acts and it's a call to action. Let's disturb our city. Let's turn our city upside down. Listen, we need another awakening in this nation, don't we? Hey, by the way, let me, I don't want to get off on this. We're running out of time. But let me, I'm tired of our... Let me say, I'll say this nicely. I'm tired of the only time that people in our nation refer to evangelicals is in the, is in the context of politics. All they say about who they're going to vote for, who they support, who, this candidate, this candidate. Listen to me. I want people to talk about the impact we are making with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want them to talk about churches that are seeing people's lives radically change as we reach person after person and household after household. And we are disturbing our city for the glory of God. That's what I want people to say about the church. Amen? Tired of all this political talk. We're not, listen, we're not beholden to any party or any candidate. We serve Jesus. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our priority. He is number one. Amen? That was extra. I didn't, I didn't intend to say that. Let's disturb our city. Number two, let's learn to praise God in all things. Number three, let's prioritize impacting losses over self-concern. Number four, let's go after households. Here's the summary. Selfless, hope-filled Christians with a concern for all generations will change the world with the gospel. Selfless, hope-filled Christians with a concern for all generations will change the world with the gospel. And here's the, the very personal question I want to ask you. Does that description apply to you? Are you a selfless, hope-filled Christian with a concern for all generations?